Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. So we're slowing the music down a little bit. Because I think one of the things we need to do is relax. I mean, we've been through a lot this weekend. We've been through a lot in the last 22 months, really. So we've got some terrific guests for you today. But I kind of want you to think about this as a front porch. We're all going to sit here and just think about where we are right now and maybe where we're headed. So I want you to stress a little less. We're going to talk about some stressful stuff. We've got terrific guests. We're lucky to have built up some relationships with some very, very well-informed people uh, in this era of the Mueller investigations and all the other things that swirl around it. So later on the show today, you'll hear Dahlia Lithwick. I mean, who else? She's been with us forever. Uh, we believe Ross Garber, who proves <laughs> unquestionably the most credentialed impeachment lawyer in the in the United States, uh, will be joining us. Uh, right now, though, we're very excited to have with us uh, someone we've spoken to before, uh, Asha Rangappa, uh, Director of Admissions and Senior Lecturer at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs, former FBI agent, karaoke singer. I, that may not be relevant. Um, and um, so, first of all, welcome back to our show. Thank you. The place I would like to start with you, because I think it's really in your wheelhouse, is, you know, we're all talking about sort of what might be the underlying findings of the Mueller report and what Attorney General Barr is saying about that. But this whole thing, the Mueller, one thing we know about the Mueller report and kind of even the, the Barr letter is it starts with a reminder of the massive counterintelligence case that has existed and I assume continues to exist here in in the United States, that we know that just massive amounts of work was done by the Russian government uh, and that incredible approaches were made to, to all kinds of people connected to Donald Trump, from Jeff Sessions to Michael Flynn to Jared Kushner to Paul Manafort to Donald Trump Jr. to, to George Papadopoulos to Carter Page uh, to Mike Flynn. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving people out. But the Russian operatives tried to get at this campaign any way they could, and they also managed separately from that to cyber cyber infiltrate our elect, our electoral process, hack our electoral process. I mean, there's still, Asha, I assume, a huge counterintelligence case sitting out there. Absolutely. I mean, I have been saying for the last two years that, you know, people's over-reliance on the criminal charges that are filed in the Mueller investigation uh, is really missing the biggest part of this investigation. Um, you know, very rarely do counterintelligence investigations see the inside of a courtroom. Right. And this is for a number of reasons. Um, first is that you're protecting sensitive sources and methods. You don't want to lay all your cards out on the table. But also because 
there may be it may, these things may be hard to prove. Uh, you know, the bar for criminal charges beyond a reasonable doubt is incredibly high, and especially when you're dealing with a very sophisticated uh, foreign intelligence service like Russia's. You know, they aren't leaving a trail. The whole point of a covert operation is to create plausible deniability, and so being able to put together the kind of case that you would normally do and say a conspiracy investigation will be really hard. Um, but that doesn't mean that there was not significant intelligence of all of the things that you just mentioned, the contacts, what was going on, what was Russia trying to do, did they receive any um, receptiveness, uh, you know, how were they able to execute all of their different fronts um, in the Russian interference uh, operation, um, all of that is going to be contained in the counterintelligence findings. Right. And and one point that you guys have made at JustSecurity.org, too, is you know, and once again, this isn't the same thing as provable collusion. But in all of those contexts, those myriad, dozens and dozens of contacts between Russian operatives, Russian uh, intermediaries, and people who are tied key in a key way to either the campaign or the administration, as, as far as we can tell, nobody ever went, wow, nobody ever hung up the phone or clicked off an email and said, I better tell somebody about this. I just got contacted by a Russian agent who's really interested in X, Y, and Z. I better go tell the FBI about this. I mean, no, nobody apparently ever thought about doing that. No one thought about doing it. I mean, you have the Trump Tower meeting where uh, you have a Russian lawyer who's basically uh, affiliated with the Russian government offering dirt on Hillary Clinton. This whole investigation started because of uh, George Papadopoulos being offered dirt on Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, not to mention that, by the way, in early August of 2016, the FBI briefed the campaigns and said, Russia will be making approaches to you. They are trying to interfere in our election. Let us know if you see anything suspicious. And yet, even after that very explicit warning, we don't have anyone reporting their contacts with Russia and, in fact, lie about it almost to a person. And in fact, I don't know of a single person in this campaign who has actually been truthful about their contacts. And then, of course, Trump himself, who was concealing his business interest in Russia during the campaign. We we really just don't know the story about that. Um, all of those things. And what what was the what? Why were they not forthcoming um, about these contacts? What was it that they were trying to conceal? And even if it wasn't illegal, what is it that they believed would be would harm their you know, perhaps their election chances or would be embarrassing or unethical that they were not uh, wanting to see the light of day. You know, there's another why that we don't know. I'm sure there are lots of whys. But the, another why that we don't know is why Russia wanted to do all this. In other words, at a certain point, they went from a kind of generalized interest in disrupting the committee uh, and the, the, you know, peaceful procedures to the extent that we have any of our electoral politics to very specifically trying to pick a winner and a loser. And, and I don't know if that's going to be anywhere there in underlying documents that never might see the light of day if it's there in counterintelligence reports. But we, as far as I know, we don't know why they would want one candidate over another. Well, I mean, I think if you are more familiar with Putin and his history uh, with um, 
Hillary Clinton in particular, I think that the reasons become more clear. Mm-hmm. So I think the specific reason is that Hillary Clinton uh, made public statements as Secretary of State following Putin's election in 2011 or 2012. Um, and those were followed by protests in Russia. And Putin you know, believes, I think, to his core that it was really the U.S. government that was behind, uh, you know, these protests against his his election, and that you know they the the Russian people were be were puppets of of the American government um, in trying to delegitimize him, and he blamed Hillary Clinton for that. So there is a personal um, vendetta against her. But remember that either way, Putin wins, because when he can cast doubt on the legitimacy of our election overall, when, you know, people on one side or the other don't believe that the outcome is fair or, um, you know, objective, then he also discredits the democratic project um, and democratic small d to his own people and basically says, look, it's a, it, democracy is a farce and what you've got here is, is the best that, that you can do. Asha Rangappa, I know you've got a busy day. We don't have too much more time with you. So let me just ask the most open-ended question I can. What is it you now want to know that you think you might be able to know as some of the underlying documents or, or the full Mueller report itself is that begins to trickle out? What do you want to know? Well, Remember that there's two big pieces to this investigation. There's the obstruction piece and there's the collusion piece. I think on the obstruction piece, I want to just see what was the evidence that Mueller collected. Mm -hmm. You know, he decided to not come to a conclusion on whether or not it was chargeable as an offense because it created many questions of law and fact uh, because we are talking about the president. Um, And it sounds like, and he said that, Trump was not completely exonerated. So there's something there, and I think we need to see what he's collected, because that is of interest to Congress and the American people from a uh, you know, political perspective. Um, on the collusion side, I would like to see a narrative of what you know, what was happening? What happened with these meetings and these contacts? Um, did, did anything ever come of them? Um, you know, I think, like I said, even if these people were at most just receptive and behaving unethically and didn't cross any criminal lines, I think we still need to know that story. Um, If for nothing else than to understand what Russia was trying to do, because I think it's pretty clear that they are going to try it again. Right. Uh, John Dickerson uh, coined the phrase that the members of the Trump camp were collusion curious. Uh, And uh, I think that says it pretty well. Uh, All right. Asha Rangappa, I know you're busy. Uh, We're going to let you go. Director of admissions, senior lecturer at Yale University's Jackson Institute uh, for Global Affairs, former FBI agent, also with uh, JustSecurity.org. Thanks for doing this. No problem. Thank you so much. All right. Now uh, we're going to take a little break. Let me just tell you this, too. We're going to take a little break. We're going to bring in, uh, I mean, we're so lucky. I'm so lucky that, you know, I don't know how long ago this was. I saw this writer, Dahlia Lithwick. I think it was another with another radio station. And I thought, wow, I mean, she's great. So now she, because of that, because of that debt, she has to continue to appear on the show basically forever. It's like in a fairy tale or something. Um, so that's who we're going to talk to. I do want to say that I want to make some room for you. I know that you all have been sitting there kind of gnawing on this information or possibly one of your limbs 
over the weekend and that you may have things that you want to say. So uh, we'll find some room somewhere in the lineup today. We've got all these terrific guests, but we'll find some room for you to call in at 860-275-7266. But not just now, because we're going to take the break. We're coming back to Dahlia. It's an Yeah, but more of a front porch than a scramble. You know, we know a lot of people. They've all been following the story. We're kind of having them all step up on the front porch, talk a little bit about how it looks right now. I mean, not, one thing we know is nothing is going to change in particular in the next 24 hours. Nothing changed that much in the last 24 hours. Dahlia Lithwick is with us now. We're so lucky to get her. Uh, Slate's courts and law reporter, host of the podcast. Oh, no, I'm going to do my mental black thing. Whether Is it amicus or amicus? Amicus or amicus? I'm going to say it's amicus. Did I do it right? You are right. Yeah. I just, you know, it's one of those things where I, I used to know this guy who knew that his wife, Marianne, either did or didn't have an E at the end of her name. And I always felt that marriage was in trouble and I was right. So if you if, like, if you know it's one or the other, that's not really like knowing something. Um, all right. So, um, you know, we've talked about this a bunch of times before. I, maybe a place that I'd like to start is, uh, Dahlia, you know, Robert Mueller despite all the um, caterwauling today about illegal takedowns, um, Robert Mueller kind of turned out to be who we always said he was, who we always thought he was, right? A guy who was going to be very, very careful and, and maybe collegial almost to a fault and, and not overstep and not overreach, quite the opposite from what we can see. Right. I, I think I had been warning, and you're right, I think you and I have talked about this, Colin, that, you know, if you expected a superhero, you know, somebody to come in, you know, flashing a flaming sword, like this was never going to be the guy. This is a lifelong Republican. This is a guy who has worked within the very narrow guardrails of the most small C conservative institution, not politically, you know, capital C, but just one of those institutions that is all about being norm bound and rule bound and as small as you can be. And the idea that, you know, people had like, you know, the votive candles and the mugs and the like I heart Mueller headbands, like that was us, right? That was us looking for some easy way out. And I think, you know, there's a weird way in which so much of the narrative, even in the last couple of weeks as this was heating up, was like, oh, he's going to indict Trump. He was never going to indict Trump. There's Office of Legal Counsel guidance that says you can't invite, indict a sitting president. And I think we just got so far out ahead of our skis in terms of expectations that when he performed exactly to the task that he was meant to perform, we all feel like it's a crushing defeat. So I think it's, in some sense, Democrats who were looking for some kind of vindication, some kind of magic, you know, with a bow on top answer are frustrated. But I don't think Mueller was ever going to be that guy. Um, a counter argument that gets made is, well, what's a special counsel for? A special counsel is theoretically uh, somebody who can lift something out of the realm uh, of, of political appointees uh, and hive it off uh, and give it some shelter and look at it in, in this much more independent way. And that the, the net result of what Mueller did, at least as, uh, especially as far as the obstruction of justice stuff goes, is that he handed it back to a political appointee 
and not even just any political appointee, a, a guy who was sort of handpicked on short notice with a 19-page memo declared interest in handling this a certain way, that, that in a way being so sort of courtly and, and, and giving everything back to Barr, he kind of took some of the uh, the purpose away from what a special counsel can do. Well, yes and no. I think, you know, one thing to, to remember is that uh, we don't know that he gave it to Barr. What we know is that he said, I, you know, I can't exonerate, I can't uh, convict. Uh, Barr took it upon himself, uh, with apparently with Rod Rosenstein, to make a finding there, to make a conclusion of law. And so, you know, I think it's. I, I think one wants to be a little bit careful uh, about saying that, you know, he he wanted uh, this massive hundreds and hundreds of pages of report that he did to be, you know, in the span of under 48 hours mm-hmm. to have a legal declaration made by Barr saying, okay, you know, I, I think he can't, uh, he can't have obstructed. So I think it's, it's a little bit trickier than that. I mean, I, I completely take your larger point, which is one way or another, what he did was hand this back to the political branches, whether it's, you know, handing it back to Barr, who, you know, works for Trump, Barr, who, by the way, you know, additions to be attorney general by writing a memo saying there's no such thing as obstruction. The president can't ever commit obstruction. So, you know, we knew where Barr was going to come down on that. But but in a deeper way, I think what he's done is said, and this kind of goes back to Leon Jaworski and the roadmap, you know, to Watergate, but I think what he has said at some level is this isn't a criminal matter that is going to be handled by criminal indictments. There is a huge mass of information. We don't know any of it. We have a brief summary from Barr. There's a huge mass of information, and Congress should get to work figuring it out. And whether or not this rises to the level of a criminal conspiracy or kind of quid pro quo agreement with Russia to steal the election in exchange for, uh, you know, lifting sanctions, whatever it is, it may not have been a crime, but that isn't necessarily the bar we've set as a constitutional democracy. So get to work, Congress. And I think that that, too, is in keeping with Robert Mueller's temperament and personality. I want to come back to get to work, Congress. But I think it's also worth noting, this was a 22-month investigation that produced, as you say, a pretty, well, we haven't seen it yet, but it's going to be a pretty massive amount of stuff. Now, either Barr and Rosenstein, you know, they just like got a big urn of Starbucks and some white crosses or whatever they used in college and ordered a lot of Chinese food. So, boy, we just got to do this. We just got to burn it all night long for, for 48 hours and figure this thing out. Or they kind of knew what they were going to do anyway. I mean, it seems like a very snap decision. I mean, it's it's physically impossible that they reviewed the Mueller report in its entirety and came out there. So, I mean, it does sort of send a signal that, well, this is kind of the way it's going to, it was going to be. I think that's right. And I think, again, if you look back at, you know, Barr's memo that he wrote in the summer, sort of auditioning for this position, uh, where he talked about how inappropriate it was even to look at obstruction. If you look at, um, you know, the conclusions he therefore makes where he says, and I think that this is factually incorrect, by the way, um, David Lurie has a great piece up at Slate saying factually and legally it is wrong to say that if you 
did not do the predicate crime, you can't therefore be tagged for obstruction, which is the, the, the mm-hmm. legal analysis that we get from Barr and Robin, Rosenstein. That's wrong, right? I mean, yeah. Lori says Martha Stewart did I, obstruction. I was just going to say Martha Stewart. Right. So that's, gonna, that's yeah. just incorrect. So he, I think, you know, one of the ways to think about this is, and there's several places, right? He says um, collusion with the Russian government. That wasn't the only question, right? The Russian government is part of it, but, you know, what about WikiLeaks? What about, you know, uh, people who are not formally working for the Russian government uh, who had contacts with the Trump administration? So in in a way, the the entire four-page summary defines crimes as things Donald Trump didn't do mm-hmm. and not um, these are the crimes the way that we think of them. And so I think you're completely right to say this looks, as I read it, and if you look at it alongside all of the indictments that already exist, what Mueller was doing in plain sight, uh, both about the hacks and the, you know, right, the, the, the release of the um, the wiki release and also um, the attempts to influence the election. If you look at all of that that has unrolled in the last two years, it cannot be the case that the definition of those improper behaviors that Barr and Rosenstein use in their memo is correct. And so I think what they did is reverse engineered the memo to say Trump didn't do this, with the, quote, Russian government, therefore, nothing to see here. And I think we know from all of the mass of of Mueller's other work that there is a lot to see here. So it does feel as though the memo was written to exculpate. And as I said, I think that it's really important to remember that this doesn't end what the Southern District of New York is looking into, what courts in Virginia and D.C. are looking into, what state attorneys general are looking into, right? If the baseline were, did Donald Trump commit these crimes as defined by Barr, I think everybody could be as depressed as they want to be today. But I think that there that is not the baseline. The baseline is, you know, self-dealing, corruption, uh, you know, grift and and quid pro quos. And those will be examined in other courts around the country. I I promise those are not going away. Right. It it is sort of, you know, you notice the the, even though they're often compared and linked, the differences between Mueller and Comey. Right. Because Comey, when his turn came, uh, particularly with the Hillary Clinton stuff, he said, well, we're not going to prosecute. We're not going to proceed. But boy, this really sucked. And it was really undisciplined. This this is disgusting. You know, but we're not going to do anything about it. But it was really disgusting. I want to emphasize how disgusting and undisciplined and wrong it was. And, And Mueller, who I think very easily and more justifiably, given all of the stuff that we do know about Russian contact between uh, their intermediaries and Trump's inter- intermediaries, um, he could make a speech like that. It's just that's just not appropriate or anywhere in his wheelhouse. Yeah, I mean, I think that in some sense the tragedy of this is that Mueller isn't Ken Starr, right? Yeah. <laughs> Ken Starr, who devoted you know years to what really was this deeply salacious in the weeds, unrelated to, you know, the the thing that he was tasked with investigating. And in some sense, because of Ken Starr, the special counsel rules get rewritten to be far more constrained and circumscribed. And then you get a human being like Bob Mueller, who is himself far more constrained and circumscribed. And, you know, he's not Jim Comey. He's not Ken Starr. He is essentially a prosecutor who was looking at a very narrow lane, was there, you know, this counterintelligence operation? Did 
Um, you know, were people in Trump's orbit compromised by foreign powers? And what spun off slightly from that, which is, you know, were there crimes involved in that? And was there obstruction? That's what he was tasked with. And so I think while we may have all hoped that looking at Deutsche Bank and Jared's loans and what was going on with Eric Prince and the Seychelles, all of that, we want that story, right? This like Dickens-sized volume of misconduct. But again, He's been chronicling the misconduct in these speaking indictments for years. We know how many people who worked on Trump's campaign have either, you know, pleaded guilty or are like in jail for their misconduct. All of this is known. It's out in the open. And so the idea that we needed it repackaged is very much a reality show idea. It's not a legal idea at all. So last question. I mean, now uh, a lot of this does shift over. We often talk about how some of these questions are probably more appropriately uh, addressed in Congress uh, that in some ways the kind of criminal justice mechanism that exists here in the United States doesn't do well with, say, sitting presidents. But you, you look over now at Congress and, you know, they're not exactly perfectly equipped either because they're political animals. It's a political process. You've got members of Congress today kind of hilariously saying, well, this is still important and we're going to still going to look into it. But there's certainly a lot of other important domestic and foreign issues that are going to affect the 2020 elections. And we're going to make sure we talk about those, too. And, and th it's unclear to them how much of their central purpose should be the continuation of this, because it isn't exactly what they were born to do either. You know, I just, uh, I can't remember who tweeted it, Colin, but somebody tweeted this morning that an awful lot of uh, members, at least in the House and the Judiciary Committee, um, are actually kind of grateful that they don't have to go on TV and talk about this and only this, because yep. they would really actually like to talk about other things, mm -hmm. uh, including the economy, including health care. So I think in one way, they may be almost well served by the fact that, 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 that the myopic, you know, monomaniacal cable news, Mueller, Mueller, Mueller thing uh, has gone away. That said, I think that they will continue to, whether it's subpoenaing Mueller, whether it's, you know, trying to get their hands on some leaked version of this, I think they're going to continue to use this to tell this larger story of corruption and self-dealing and incompetence uh, without necessarily being bound by the idea that this is going to get resolved when the president is cuffed on the White House lawn and goes to jail. That was never a good narrative because it was never going to happen. And I think maybe a slightly more realistic tale of do you want a president who's profiting at his hotels, you know, from foreign governments? That's a, a story I think they can tell, that those lawsuits continue, that those stories will, I think, have some salience. So in a strange way, the fact that there are political animals untethered now from a legal narrative that I think in the end of the day was bound to disappoint, it may redound to their benefit. It's a good place to end. Uh, we're so lucky to get you, Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's Courts and Law reporter, host of the podcast Amicus, which you should definitely be listening to. Thank you so much for doing this once again. Thank you, Colin. All right. So when we uh, get back, we'll be talking to the Better Call Saul of impeachment, the guy you got to call if you're getting impeached. That's Ross. Nobody's getting impeached right now. I just want to say that at the moment, or at least that I'm aware of. Nobody. He would be aware if somebody was getting impeached. Nobody's getting impeached right now, but if anybody does— we're going to need to talk to Ross. Everything leads to corruption. Everything leads to corruption.
Today's show was produced as a result of a conspiracy between Scott Breedy, an agent of Spectre, and me, Kion Wolvnovsky, an agent of Thrush. Amanda Fish did not obstruct justice. Our intern is Kayla Thomas. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mike Flynn. On tomorrow's show, we go back to the days when all the famous cartoonists and comic strip makers lived in Connecticut. And now, back to Colin. All right. So, uh, and I do promise, towards the end of the show today, I'm going to make some room for your phone calls. I know you've got things on your mind, things in your heart, things you may want to uh, get off your chest. So those are three different locations right there. Uh, so you've seen the billboard signs by the highway. Impeaching the boss? Better call Ross. Ross Garber, attorney and CNN legal analyst who teaches political investigations and impeachments at Tulane Law School and has represented Republican governors in Connecticut, Alabama, South Carolina, and Missouri who were facing impeachment. I've known him since his first impeachment. Uh, I've watched him grow. Uh, so, Ross Garber, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's good to be here, Colin. Thanks. So let's uh, give credit where credit is due. Uh, Thirteen months ago, in the op-ed of the L.A. Times, you write, Will the president be charged with a crime? Will Mueller send a report to Congress so that it can, so that it can initiate impeachment hearings? I think he will do neither. That's what you wrote 13 months ago. Uh, mm-hmm. You called it. I did. Yeah, it, you know, it's like the blind squirrel, right? <laughs> Not every, at all. Every once, in, every once in a while, yeah, I called this one. So w- w- now when you made that call, and as you watched it unfold over the last 13 months, w- is that because the apparatus doesn't really exist very easily to do those kinds of things? In other words, we know from the guidelines, essentially, that, that it's not really baked into the special counsel apparatus as we have it now. Yeah, it's not at all. And and I think where I was coming from was uh, having having done a bunch of impeachments and represented a bunch of political officials in in other kinds of cases and teaching this stuff and litigating this stuff. I I, I think I probably had a little more perspective on it. And and that's exactly right. So there, there was an independent counsel act back during Clinton, which said that if an independent counsel found any evidence of impeachable conduct. He had to turn that over to the House. That act expired. That doesn't exist anymore. And so now we've got these regulations at the Department of Justice, and those regulations are different. They don't say that at all. They say the attorney general, who you know normally is a presidential appointee, the attorney general gets to decide. It's totally up to him what information goes to Congress, what information goes to the public, and uh, and, and what doesn't. And there are regulations of the Department of Justice saying that a president can't be indicted. And so that's sort of, you know, what led us here today. So one thing that I know, being the beneficiary occasionally of your wisdom, is that impeachments uh, and, and things that are like impeachments happen at different levels. You know, they might happen at an investigatory level, level the way we've been talking about. They may happen in congressional hearings, but they also happen in the public arena. Uh, and one of the things that probably uh, a public official has to do uh, with uh, able assistance is think about how to talk about that, how it's going to be talked about in the public arena. And, and I have to say that uh, I don't talk about the blind squirrel. I, I, I don't know whether this is the case or not, but in a way, I think I think Donald Trump or somebody has been kind of a genius in the sense that he kept saying no collusion, no collusion, mm-hmm. no collusion. So he made that the the deal breaker or the deal maker and 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 in then getting the finding that he got. I mean, I think in the court of public opinion, that's a pretty big win for him. 
Yeah, now, look, he was incredible at defining the issue and staying on message over and over and over and over and over again. No collusion, no collusion, no collusion. You know, I, I once worked for a, a public official who said, "He who defines the issue wins the debate," and that is often true. And and Trump had an instinct and has an instinct from it uh, for that. I mean, he defined the issue as no collusion. And, you know, lots of egghead lawyers and commentators and other folks would say, well, it's, you know, it's not really about collusion. It's about conspiracy and that's more nuanced. Or they'd say there are other issues and he'd say no collusion, no collusion, no collusion, no collusion. And he has the bully pulpit. And so, yes, you know, he was able to define the issue so that yesterday when the attorney general came out and said no collusion, uh, the, the press and others uh, generally reported that essentially Trump won. Um, yes, and uh, certainly he's been taking a victory lap all day long. Although, in in a way, he has a tendency to overplay his hand. And so today he's running around saying illegal takedown. I mean, it seems to me, as I was saying to Dahlia earlier, that the characteristics of the Mueller probe and, and his his forwarding to, to Barr has been kind of the opposite. I mean, just really, really I mean, even Barr said in his initial four-page letter, uh, did I ever have to rein him in? Did he overreach? Did he overstep? No. You know, um, for this to be an illegal takedown seems like a mischaracterization of the sort of general collegiality and probity uh, of Robert Mueller. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see the, the president back off of the illegal takedown uh, stuff and, and, and maybe be a little more gracious toward the uh, toward the special counsel. But right now, you know, we, we were talking about defining the issue right now. What the president is going to uh, is going to be a challenge to do is figure out what the defining issue is going to be now, uh, because. A lot of folks out there are going to be saying, yes, but, all right, no collusion, but, you know, but maybe obstruction, but maybe this, but maybe that, but maybe, you know, issues in the Southern District of New York. You know, the president is going to, you'll, you'll see, I think, test out some themes uh, for what he wants to define the issue to be. And the other people who will be testing out themes will be members of Congress. Um, uh, you seem to feel as though an awful lot of the decision-making power about how how powerfully this will be explored may reside in Speaker Pelosi herself. Yes. Yeah, I, I think the, the committee chairs and certainly the rank-and-file members are going to be taking their lead and direction from her, although she's certainly aware of what the rank-and-file and what the, the committee chairs want. But she is a, a very, very, very talented politician. Uh, she knows how to read a poll. She knows how to read voters. And, um, you know, and I, I've been saying, I don't think she wants an impeachment fight about this. I don't think she wants impeachment proceedings. Uh, she doesn't want to be the next Newt Gingrich uh, or Bob Livingston, who, you know, ultimately lost their positions mm -hmm. during the, the Clinton impeachment fight. I don't think she wants any of that. And so uh, it'll be interesting over the next few days to, and weeks to see how hard she pushes for she and her committee chairs push for hearings, push for documents, push for information. I I think at this point, uh, you know, I'm I'm expecting them not to be incredibly aggressive about this. I think they'd rather run straight up on the issues in 2020 and run against the president. 
Well, I mean, Ross, another thing that you pointed out, though, is it isn't that they have to start an investigation. They've already been investigating. And it's conceivable that some of these committees have already collected testimony or evidence that speaks more forcefully than Barr is prepared to do towards some of these issues. In other words, uh, if one of these committees is already developing evidence that really does make a powerful case for obstruction of justice, what happens then? What happens if if their stuff uh, doesn't really line up that well with the way Barr is processing Mueller's work? Yeah, I you know, I, I think we might already know it if that were the case. But, you know, the person I'm watching most is former Connecticut resident Mark Warner, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, is now the Senate Intel Intelligence Committee vice chair. So he's the ranking Democrat on the Senate Intelligence Committee. That committee has been doing an incredibly detailed, thorough, bipartisan investigation. They've talked to tons of witnesses, collected lots and lots of documents. And and I think that's the place to look. That you know the House Intelligence Committee investigation was partisan and and and, and probably not as effective as what the Senate has done. I say let's let's look at the Senate and let's see what the Senate says they found. And in particular, let's see what you know Democratic Senator Mark Warner says about the information about you know conspiracy or collusion or working with the Russians or anything. That the that the Senate Intelligence Committee has found. Typical East of the River guy sticking with the guy from Rockville. I hear that, <laughs> or Vernon, go. or wherever he's from. Um, so um, I guess the other thing we should acknowledge, and it's been widely acknowledged, is the notion that we'll ever see the full Mueller report seems quixotic. I mean, there are things that have to be redacted, things that fall within grand jury stuff, things that's that maybe is our, our counterintelligence. I mean, how? How high should anybody's expectations be set here? So th- that that is a debate. I've, I've, I, I've in the past year or so, I've I've started using Twitter more. That's a debate that I seem to be having a lot on Twitter these days. And in particular, I don't know if you've had Ashwangapa on. Yeah, she was yet. on the uh, top of the show. Yeah. So yeah, so I missed her. So you know, she and I have, have gone back and forth, and you know, one. You know, piece of advice is to never get into a Twitter war with Asha. No. Uh, it, but anyway, so that's a big issue. I, I think most people expect us to see a lot of the Mueller report and the underlying information. I'm not so sanguine. I don't think we're going to see that much that we don't already know, because what's going to happen is he, the attorney general is going to take out information that's protected by grand jury secrecy. He's going to take out information that is is protected by uh, you know classified that's classified um he'll take out information probably a lot of it that's derogatory or negative information about people who haven't been charged with crimes and then he'll potentially take out a bunch of stuff that's covered by executive privilege presidential communications and deliberative process i think once you take all that out once you sift all that out there's not going to be much left hmm. Um, well, possibly on that note, uh, we'll conclude, Ross. Uh, uh, other than to say, I mean, if you had to sort of predict, say, from now to the election, and I, that's risky, a risky thing to do, predict, predicting the how the narrative goes, uh, it seems, based on what you're saying and really what everybody else is saying, that this is not going to— be decided in any legally decisive sense in between now and the election that Trump may limp into the electoral season, dinged up by some of this stuff, and but also triumphant in in the eyes of others. Uh, 
I'm not sure I'd go that far. Two things to, to, I think, look for on the legal front, which actually could make a, a big impact. One is the Southern District of New York is continuing an investigation related to Trump and his businesses. And imagine being a prosecutor in that office and seeing Trump do a victory lap. Watch what happens out of the Southern District. Subpoenas, witnesses, indictments, watch that. And the second thing to watch is how aggressive Congress gets. Do they issue subpoenas? Do they hold public hearings? Do they try to uh, enforce subpoenas? You know, how hard do they go? And, and in particular, do they get any cooperators on any issues, including obstruction? So watch those two things. You know, let me ask you a quick question about the first thing. And I don't know how easy it would be to answer, but it's based on some very deep legal research that I've been doing by watching the series Billions on Showtime. Um, so in that, you know, at a certain point, there's a new attorney general on billions uh, answerable to a different kind of precedent with a different set of attitudes who, in communicating with the Southern District of New York, uh, is able to order different sets of priorities. And I just wonder, I, I don't know if we know how much uh, uh, of a, a stranglehold or any kind of hold uh, Attorney General Barr would exert over the Southern District of New York, but he, he does have some power over it, right? Yeah, well, organizationally, he de- definitely does. But the, the prosecutors in that office often refer to it, you know, the SDNY as the sovereign district of New York because of the amount of independence it has. Um, and, and it generally does exercise a ton of, of independence, uh, which is why I think that's the office to watch. All right. Well, Ross Garber, nobody's getting impeached. So you're like the Maytag guy. You're just sitting Not there today. waiting. Yeah, you're just sitting there waiting. Thank you so much for joining us, though. Okay, that's uh, Ross Garber, who who I've known since his first impeachment. Uh, He is an attorney uh, and CNN legal analyst who teaches political investigations and impeachments at Tulane Law School and has represented Republican governors. I mean, this has got to be a record, right? Republican governors uh, in Connecticut, Alabama, South Carolina and Missouri, all of them facing impeachment. Of course, the Connecticut one was John Rowland, where uh, just to be just so we know. So. Ross, in my recollection, was at that time more in the Ty Cobb kind of role. He was really representing the officer, office of the governor, uh, as opposed to representing Governor Rowland himself. Just so you know, uh, it's always a little bit different that way. All right. So I have left some time for you uh, here at the end. Uh, The number is 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. And, you know, I really did feel as though it would be better you know, I mean, you know, what what happens on Friday when we get the word? We, we had already been talking about, well, what will happen if the Mueller report drops and what are we going to do? And then you get the word. And then Friday night you watch all of these pundits who have nothing to look at whatsoever. Uh, they have no report. They don't know, uh, you know, what to say. Uh, and uh, there's a kind of feverishness and that it kind of rolls through the weekend. And I just sort of felt as though, and it's one of the reasons I'm making the phone lines available, if you want to use them, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. 
it's more like how do you want to live the next few months of your life? You know, how do you want to live maybe the next two years of your life? And, and with that in mind, I want to actually play a little clip here. I've got to get better at saying his name because he's like my favorite political candidate. He's my favorite presidential candidate right now. Uh, but I haven't quite mastered how you say the name of the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. But he's a Democratic presidential hope. Ho- I like to call him Mayor Pete. That's what he likes to call himself. Buttigieg. Buttigieg. Is that pretty good, Scott? Buttigieg. Yeah. All right. So anyway, let's uh, hear a little bit uh, of him on this. I would argue a figure like this president should never have been able to come within cheating distance of the Oval Office. And I fear uh, that if we're not paying attention to the causes that he's a symptom of, uh, then not only is it possible for him to succeed in 2020, but we could also find ourselves with another figure like him or even worse in the future. I love this guy. But, I mean, he's kind of nailing it here, too, just to go back to the very beginning of our show today. And once again, we do have open phone lines available for you to opine on 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. When you look at—so one thing that was really helpful to me on Friday— I went over to lawfare.com. Lawfare, if you want to really geek out on something like this, lawfare.com is a great place not only to read, but occasionally to uh, listen to podcasts where they don't worry too much about production values. They just like try to tell you what's going on. Well, it turned out about a week and a half ago, in getting ready for the Mueller report, they had done this thing that was a little bit more produced than what they usually do, but they had taken Mueller's so-called speaking indictments. So these, when, when Mueller issued indictments, they would often have quite a bit of narrative in them. That's called a speaking indictment. Um, and so when he, whether he's indicting Russian agents or you know Michael Flynn or whoever, um, or Paul Manafort, um, there'd be quite a bit of information. And so what they did was they kind of turned those into almost little soliloquies And they had a series of people just kind of read the words with very little editing of the Mueller team. And you just became aware of how much was already known, how much has already been made part of the record. Yes, uh, the uh, initial Russian interest in disrupting the peacefulness uh, of our elections and destabilizing our democracy, the subsequent interest uh, of Russian agents in specifically aiding Trump over Clinton, uh, the hacking uh, of the servers of the Democratic Congressional Committee, the Democratic National Committee. Um, I mean, think, think the activities uh, of of Paul Manafort, um, the activities of Michael Flynn, just listening to all those things be read through, you just think, wow, there were just all these guys with these tremendously intricate Russian connections and a Russian apparatus that was unquestionably, you know, at a level that's probative right now, I think, interested, interested in doing harm to our process. How did we ever get there? And, and how did we ever reach a point where knowing everything that we know, it's possible for at least some of us, maybe not you and me, but for some of us to say, OK, so it was really nothing. Really, when you really get down to it, it was nothing. I mean, when you listen to <laughs> when, you, when you listen to what I think what Mayor Pete called, you know, they got within cheating distance. And how did that happen? happen? And, and I think that really is the big question. I think he has. He's coined it perfectly. I, I hope that as a country, yeah, we still need to know more about this stuff. We still need to know um, as much as possible 
what kinds of things Mueller is talking about when he says that there were there was evidence on both sides uh, in terms of obstruction of justice, um, some evidence su- strongly suggesting obstruction, some evidence perhaps leading in the other direction. We, we really do want to know what, I mean, that's pretty significant for the special counsel to say that. Uh, we at minimum need to know what's meant by that. Um, I'm sure, I, I think I've said on the air before that I never really thought that the Russian collusion thing was going to be the thing that, you know, so many of the other uh, aspects that are being being looked into seem to involve things like tax evasion uh, and money laundering. Uh, I think in this case, we are going to go back to Deep Throat and Hal Holbrook and follow the money. There's going to be a lot of stuff that's going to come out about the Trump organization's relationship to money and ways in which that filters out into the kinds of stories that we've been talking about. But I think Mayor Pete is also right. The real question is, how did our country get to this place? How did we arrive at a place where any of this was even borderline acceptable? How did we come to a moment where people like this could be in the White House, self-dealing all day long, <laughs> you know, pursuing their own economic interests, meeting with with countries that they're going to meet offsite with later about loans that people like Jared need for their defaulting properties. How did we how did we reach this point? Because I'm old enough to have lived through the Nixon White House. And that was upsetting. Once you realized the, the enormity uh, and the pervasiveness of what Watergate was, it, it you know, I remember my father, a lifelong Republican, being just totally freaked out with the, the how monumental it was. But, you know, that was a case where it kind of gradually got like that. Here, I feel like it's been like that since day one. And somehow or other, we live with it. And Mayor Pete has the right question. How do we get here? And how do we get to another place where this isn't just, you know, something that we just, the water got turned up a degree a day until we were boiling lobsters in it? Yes.